We are now in chapter 4 of the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that is of creation. Now, uh, let's keep track of where we are. Chapter 1 was of Holy Scripture. So we have to know about the source of all our material. And then chapter 2, inevitably, was of God and the Holy Trinity. You're going to consider God himself and his being. And then chapter 3 is of the decree of God. Well, now we're fleshing out the decree of God in two ways. And it should be said that the, the divines followed a practice where they would break things down into two. Because the scripture does that. You think in Genesis 1, it's the structure of the creation itself is binary. Heaven and earth, light and darkness, so on, land and the sea, all of those sorts of things. You have the creator, the creature. And, and so following that logic, they break things down into twos. And so when they look at the decree of God, they see them manifested in two categories, God's decree of creation and God's decree of providence. His making of all that there is, and then his rule, which includes history of all that it is. And that brings us tonight to uh, creation. There's actually only two paragraphs in chapter 4. You're going, oh, this will be so short and easy. Well, we'll hold off on that thought. Uh, First is God the Creator. Paragraph 1 of chapter 4. It pleased God the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost for the manifestation of the glory of his eternal power, wisdom, and goodness in the beginning to create or make of nothing the world, and all things there, whether visible or invisible, of six days, and all very good. So there's your comprehensive introductory paragraph. Now bear in mind that all of these paragraphs are the result of the Westminster Divines' uh, work four and a half, four or 450 years ago, where they would break up into committees and committees would take a stab at something and they'd come up with a draft and they'd debate it. Did we leave something out? Did we say it the right way? Because interesting, one of the great things about the Westminster Divines was they were not gathered together to decide on their theology. They were gathered together to decide on how to express the theology that they already had when they showed up. It's one of the reasons why it's the best of the Reformation creeds. And this is a classic example. You see them going, okay, what has to go into the introductory paragraph? It pleased God the Father and Son, and God, God Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, for the manifest, why? For the manifestation of his own glory, of his eternal, and then they said his power, wisdom, and goodness, especially. In the beginning to create or make of nothing the world and all things therein, whether visible or invisible, invisible is the spirit realm mainly. In the space of six days and all very good. Let's look at some of the issues. The purpose, the reason why God made the world was for his own glory. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy God forever. And so the eternal God who enjoyed perfect bliss, perfect love in the community of his triune nature, he willed to reveal himself to manifest the glories of the perfections of his attributes. And the, and the result of his desire to glorify himself is the universe in which we live. For the praise of his glory, i.e. the display of his perfect attributes. And there's so many, I, I pull from Psalm 104. Psalm 104 is one of the great creation praise psalms. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. That psalm is is celebrating the attributes of God that are revealed through creation. 
Now, we believe that, that God created uh, the universe, the world, and all things in it, ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. Um, now, the, God did not create the world out of nothing. He created it out of himself. But what we mean is it, it's, it's, it's creation by fiat, by his word. And he didn't, he, well, he does do this. He often, and you see this in Genesis 1, that he'll take pre-existing material and he'll organize it. But before he does that, there was nothing and then there was. And it's a testimony to his power. He said, let there be and there, let there be light and there was light, so on and so forth. Um, now there's an interesting, there's a variety of Hebrew words, even in Genesis 1 and 2. The, the Hebrew word bara means to create. It's only used three times in Genesis 1. The Hebrew verb bara is never used in the Bible when the subject is somebody other than God. Only God creates in this sense. And he, he created, that's the word in Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that word is talking about an original creation. There was not and there was. Um, but by the way, one of the times he uses it again is in the creation of Adam and Eve. The creation of man has a, is given the same status of an original new thing that was not and now is. But you also see him doing other things. The word asa means to make. Uh, yatsar means to form. And so he'll take things and he'll form them. Uh, bana is for fashion. By the way, when he makes man, it's asa. He makes the male. When he makes the female, it's bana. Bana is the word used, it's the verb used when Bezalel and Ohaliab made the sacred articles for the temple, the Ark of the Covenant. And so the description for how God made the woman involves artistry. He, he fashioned her. Uh, he, guys, God did not fashion you, he made you. That's why, uh, as Hermione Granger said, we have an emotional range about that far, and they have an emotional range. It's not one's better than the other. God made the man and he fashioned the woman out of it. But I want to point out just that when we say God created, we mean original creation. There was not, and then there was. Let there be light, there was light. That's ex nihilo creation. But he then makes things out of it. He builds, he organizes. There's a lot of division going on. In fact, a lot, uh, he, or, but, and, but one thing this tells us, by the way, is uh, the way that God made things good was by putting boundaries up by putting things in their proper place. And God continues doing that in his providence. The, the way to, to enjoy God's blessing is to put things in the places God put them. And he divides and he organizes and he fashions and he, he makes. But at behind it all is raw creation. He created it all. Now one thing, of course, one of the things that the, the divines emphasize and all very good uh, God made the world with an original goodness. Now, you and I, philosophically, we're living in a world drawing from Eastern mysticism and that kind of thing, where I think most people today are more or less buying into a dualism. Uh, the Marvel comic universe, which I know dominates the thoughts of, of so many of you. Where's Mel? But uh, is a dualistic world. There's no ultimate sovereign good. There is, uh, there's Thanos. Uh, if you know that from Endgame, it tells you I have high school and college age and post-college age kids. 
because uh, I know these movies. But, you know, Thanos is a word for death, by the way. And, in the, and he's like, there's no one more powerful than him. But then you have, so you have good power, you have evil power, and they're contesting. There's an ultimate contest between good and evil. And then usually it comes out with some balance is, 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 the, is what you're supposed to get to. The, the balanced state, the yin and the yang. No, that's not the world we live in, y'all. Praise the Lord. We live in a universe created by a good creator, and he made it good. And people go, then why aren't all things good? Well, it's because of the fall. But we do not live in a dualistic world where there's equal contest between good and evil. No, we live in a world created, created good by a good God. Now, sin has marred that. I think you can see that. We, we, people say to me, you know, I can't believe that God is good. I'll go, well, roll down the window and stick your head out. Because it's fall in South Carolina. And if you don't see that, I mean, the creation screams the goodness of God. Butterflies are, are coming out of their cocoons and the birds are singing or they're migrating back our direction. The sun shines, the rain falls and the grass grows. It's, it's just, it's, it, it doesn't rain acid rain unless we make it do that. I mean, it, on its own, it does good. But it's also a world where sin has come. It is a good world marred by sin. It is a world created good because the maker of it, the one creator, is a good God. What a comforting thought that is. Now let's look at some of the theology of Genesis 1-1. What does God the creator tell us about him? Well, one thing it emphasizes is the transcendence of God. Uh, and I refer to the, the creature-creator distinction, that there is God and there is creation, and they are not the same. And God is transcendent above his creation. You go, to what extent? He is infinitely transcendent above his creation. God is, is holy above all things, and there is the creator and there's the creature. I, I would say, if you said to me, what's going on in, in Western culture today? What's the real target of it all, of all the, the, the sexual chaos, the epistemological chaos. It's an attack on God the creator. And it's an attack on the creature-creator distinction. Why, for instance, do we hold the views that we hold about, about gender and sexuality? Because there is a God who made it, and he has revealed in his word how he made it, and he has the right to decide how things are. Well, what gave him the right? He is the creator. And so there is a creator-creature distinction. And the attack on all, again, this is the binary structure of, of creation. The attack on male versus female in terms of hard categories. That's the, that's the most obvious one to us, but it's everything. The, the attack between good and evil. In, in, in all our movies today, there's always... A, a dualistic balance. There is no ultimate good. There is no ultimate evil. You're seeking a balance. I'm like, well, welcome to Hinduism. That's not the world we live in. No, no. There's a creator and there's the creature. And the fact in the beginning, maybe the most important verse in the Bible is the first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before there was a creation, God was. The creation has a beginning. God has no beginning. He is ase. He is self-originating. He, he, he is the 
he is the origin of his own life. He, he, he has being in himself. The, cre- the creator, the creature does not. I could go on and on and on, but I did when I was preaching Genesis. But, uh, but uh, creation emphasizes the transcendence of God. He is the creator. We are the creature. That distinction is fundamental to all sane living in this world. It also teaches the eternality of God. I was just mentioning that. In the beginning, God already was. It reminds us of the complete freedom and the sovereignty of God. Why are things the way they are? Because God said. He has the complete, he has, talk about, he has a free will. He designed it the way it is. Genesis 1 reads the way it reads because he wanted it to read that way. And he is sovereign. He makes it as he is what, what, what Paul says, drawing from Jeremiah, we'll get to it in a bit, about the potter and the clay, talking about our salvation, is true for everything. God is the potter. Everything is the clay. He makes of it what he will. And who is there to gainsay him? You know, I love uh, in the book of Job where, you know, you've got to be sympathetic with Job. You don't want to be too hard on Job. He's been through a rough week or so, you know, uh, but he starts mouthing off at the Lord and giving his opinion. You know, if, if I were God, I'd do it better. And then you get to Genesis, you get to Job 38. Then the Lord spoke to me out of the whirlwind. Where were you when the morning stars sang together? Oh, okay, smarty pants. Let's argue with the Creator. And it's just, it's like four chapters of let me reveal majesty and glory and transcendence to you. If that might interrupt your smart talking. And at the end of it, Job says, I had heard of the Lord, but now I've seen him and I have put my hand over my mouth. I, when I was in the army, we called it uh, receive only mode. Uh, we were not. And by the way, God's not saying you can't ask him questions. But the first thing we do is we say, speak, Lord, you are God. You're the creator. You're the, you have, it is the way because you wanted it to be that way. And, and nothing is better than that God's will would be done and he is sovereign. It reveals the omnipotence of God. When, 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 next time you and I start going, oh, that's too hard for God. Uh, well, no. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He, he, it bears testimony to his omnipotence. It shows the beauty of God. Your hardest Voss says this, God stands toward the creation not so much as a gardener who lets a plant or flower grow, but rather as an artist who forms an image according to his own vision. The, the, the artisanship of God, the beauty of the character of God is seen. I mean, every time you see, I have to admit, I love the deep space photos, you know, the Hubble photos of nebulae and and that just blows me away, and it's so beautiful. There's just so it's just it's just we don't, we almost don't have the words for it. I, I remember when uh, Sharon we were in we were at my brother's place on the lake in upstate New York. Sharon said, "Let's go over to Niagara Falls." So we get a cheap. It was kind of fun. It was a really bad hotel motel, only room we could get. We blast over Niagara Falls, and it was all good. And I'm like, "Yeah, you know, it's Niagara Falls." You ever been to Niagara Falls? Yeah. How is it? It's awesome. No, it's awesome. And we turn the corner. I'm like, whoa, that is, that was worth the trip. She was right. <laughs> Again, you know, uh, I was blown away by Niagara Falls. Uh, I, I was not, I did not think I was going to be. The, uh, the, 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 when we lived, in, we didn't really, we, we, we didn't love Florida because we missed the seasons. But those 
sunsets in Florida with ocean on either side. Some of our sunsets here. Sharon and I went to Lake Rob. We discovered Lake Robinson. So we're planning as we get into empty nest mode to go kayaking. So just mentally vision me in the kayak with Sharon. And, uh, and we stood out at Lake Robinson as the sun went down. We just sat there and went, that is beautiful. You know, been to Lake, Lake Robinson and Greer? It's like a Norwegian fjord up there. The beauty of God is, and, I, and we should just revel in, because that beauty comes from somewhere. It was designed, it was made. Oh, he is so worthy of our praise. He, he is a revealing God. The reason this universe exists is because God desired, he willed, that his glory would be made known. Ultimately, what we see in Scripture is a a further extension of what we see in creation. This is why John Calvin argues, as Paul does in Romans 1, that there are no atheists. Uh, and he, and Calvin says that the, the, the universe is a theater in which God placed these special creatures designed to know him. He put us in the theater that we would marvel at the glory of the perfections of his glorious attributes. That's what the universe is. Well, let's talk about the in the space of six days. Uh, the, you may know that in, in uh, reformed conservative worlds, the PCA and, and et cetera, uh, there's been a lot of debate in the last 20, 30 years over how we're to read the creation account in Genesis 1. It has not turned out to be all that helpful. I'm, I don't mean it as criticism 450 years later. Why didn't you anticipate our particular problem? That they wrote in the space of six days. Because the question is, well, what do you mean by that? Are you trying to be nebulous? There is an argument that they were trying to be nebulous. I find it hard to believe since every single member of the Westminster Assembly was a six-day creationist. Um, But uh, uh, we believe that what they meant was what the Bible teaches, that the creation account is is a... Literal, the, the term literal usually is, is not that helpful because you still you have to interpret things properly. When properly exegeted, Genesis 1 is as an historical account that means what it says. It is a literal historical rending. And let me give you some reasons why we believe, this. certainly this church is a six-day, 24-hour church. Um, why do we believe that? Well, first is the genre of Genesis 1. Don't you, isn't that one of those words you just love to say? You know, nobody, I don't really want to speak French, but the occasional French word is kind of fun to say. Genre. You, you don't say genre. You don't say genre. You get the genre. Um, the type of different types of literature function certain ways, and they have ways you can identify them. Hebrew poetry is parallelism. That's what Hebrew poetry is. And so when you see the parallelism, you go, okay, that's poetry, and now I know how to interpret it because here's the rules for how that goes. Well, the question is, what kind of genre is Genesis 1? And the argument has been made, well, as you may know, Christians, particularly Christian scholars, are under a lot of pressure to conform with the unwielding demands of the world in a post-Darwinian world that we've got to find, since science, well, pre-Fauci, sorry, <laughs> science was this idol that nobody could ever argue with. I'm afraid the last couple of years have put some dents in that armor. But uh, 
not meant to be a political statement, just a cultural comment. But um, uh, since science is an unimpeachable source of all truth, and it disagrees with the biblical account, therefore we've got to find ways for the Bible to change. And one of the arguments that's been made is that we should not read Genesis 1 literally because it's poetry. And, and you, you'll hear this said by numerous big-name evangelicals who are looking for an excuse to accommodate the culture. And they will say G- Genesis 1 is, is poetry. Well, y'all, I want, I want to say something. There, poetry, there is a genre of Hebrew poetry. It's parallelism. There's a progressive parallelism. It's not what Genesis 1 is. But Genesis 1, the genre is prose historical narrative. Uh, this will be helpful to you. It's the Vav consecutive plus Vav. It's, a, it's, it's the normal Hebrew... Okay, I'll put it this way. When the Hebrew verb is followed by a disjunction, then you're... When, it, when it's followed by... A, 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 well, I, I'm just not going to go there. But the, 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 the structure of the Vav tense plus the... the, uh, or the, or the I'm just totally messing myself up. The, the normal verb, past tense, with the Vav, it's called the Vav consecutive. That's historical prose. The entire book of Genesis is, is, is in this form. The, the mode, the genre, the literary construct of Genesis 1 is the same as Genesis 50. Why? Because it is a prose historical narrative. Now, when you're reading prose historical narrative, what it gives you is a sequence of events that happened in order. And it tells you what happens, and it tells you what it means. So the natural way to read Genesis 1 is it is a prose history. It's giving you facts. It's to be taken as facts. It's not symbols. By the way, apocalyptic literature is completely different. When I was preaching Revelation, I said, we do not interpret this literally. It is manifestly symbolic. But this is prose historical narrative. Um, And so uh, it's the Vav consecutive plus imperfect. And so that is its normal history to be read. So what, what we'll say is, I'll say, well, we're gonna, we'll start reading Genesis as normal prose once we leave Genesis 1. Well, the problem is there is no valid reason to do that. The only valid reason for not reading Genesis 1 as prose historical narrative is that we think it gets us in trouble with the culture and we'd like to get out of that trouble with the culture. That's the only reason to do it. I'm not saying everyone is doing it for that reason. I'm saying that's what's going on. It is normal prose narrative. Uh, In fact, from verse 14 onward, everyone will argue it's all prose narrative. Now, secondly, you'll hear it this way. The word yom has a wide semantic range. Yom equals day. And so when it says on on the first day, on the second day, God created, they're saying, well, that could be ages. It doesn't have to be a 24-hour period. Uh, by the way, our point is not, it, it, when we say we're 24-hour creationists, it's actually not the number of hours we're arguing about. All we're saying is, you know, normal days. We're not, you're going, what if it was 23 minutes, 55? We're not actually arguing that. We're, by, by 24-hour, we, we mean historical days. Weekdays is what we mean. Um, it turns out that the Hebrew verb yom does not have a wide semantic range. Now, English, it does. I might say back in the good old days, back in my day, and I don't mean a 24-hour period. And you go, well, see, but, but, but it turns out that the Hebrew word yom, day, does not have that semantic range. It, it means normal day. 
Uh, not only that, you have the language of Genesis 1, which says there was evening, there was morning the first day. What is the point of evening and morning but to chart the two main time frames of a normal day? And so the, the biblical record of creation goes rather out of its way to argue that these are calendar days. By the way, it is true that the Old Testament sees the day start in the morning and end at the evening, or rather in the evening and end in the morning. We get out, we think the day starts in the morning. We do our calendars that way. Actually, it says there was evening, there was morning. And you'll see it elsewhere in the Old Testament where the day starts in the evening and it ends when that's over. Evening and morning, the second day. Moreover, on every other occasion in Scripture where there's a, an ordinal with the day, day three, day seven, the second day, the third day, every single other occasion in the Bible that is referring to a regular day. So the normal rules for interpreting Scripture will lead us to believe that the creation was made in the space of six days, space meaning, you know, a calendar period. Um, and so we believe that. Now, some people argue, well, what about the fact that the, the sun was not made until the fourth day? How can you have a day when there was no sun. Well, Gerhardus Voss says the fact that the sun and moon as measures of time were not present does not mean that there was no time. The fact that the measuring devices were not in place does not mean that the time, and Voss argues that God created from the beginning a rhythm. And he later put in the, the, everything that goes with that rhythm. But the, but the rhythm of the created realm, the day, the evening, and the morning was created by God from the beginning. Now, I will say what what persuaded me of the 6-day, 24-hour view was actually Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, because we interpret Scripture by Scripture. And it's, it's a, you say, okay, so what, what does Moses mean in Genesis 1 when he says in six days created the heavens and the, God created the heavens and the earth? What does he mean by day? Well, if the Bible elsewhere gives us the answer to that question, then the answer the Bible gives us is the answer. And in fact, the Bible does give the answer in Exodus 20, verse 4. This is the fourth commandment, or Exodus 20, 11. The fourth, the fourth commandment, why do, we, why do we work six days and keep the Sabbath holy? For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. The whole logic of the fourth commandment requires us to understand Exodus 20, 11 as referring to regular calendar days. And I, I, see, I was actually, I was actually, I think this is, this is in fact part of the reform movement in the North, where for various reasons, the Westminster and Old Princeton were not strong on this. Westminster now teaches this, but when I went there, it did not. And, uh, and, I, and when I came out of seminary, I held the kind of the fuzzy view on these things. But I found my, myself being bound by Exodus 20.11. Exodus 20.11 nails us down to a simple, if you're, if you're saying, and, and by the way, the question is not how do we reconcile this with science. That's another question. The first question is what does God say? What does God say? Well, he explains that what Genesis 1 says, that in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth. Well, what about science? Well, I have a little quote there from Voss. That science has discovered this or that or thinks it has discovered, it is not enough to cause us to discover it in the book of Genesis. 
Let God be true and every man a liar. Now, people say you're being anti-science. I am not anti-science. I have a healthy respect for science. I really do. We have benefited enormously from science. I want to argue that, uh, and I'll even give you a, a, a best-case scenario. You've got really smart men and women, and all they're doing is a pursuit of truth. Now, we know that's not true. We're all sinners. There's all kinds of agendas, but go with me. Uh, really smart men and women, they're building on others. They're, all they're doing is pursuing truth, and this is what they say. On the other hand, I have a source who has all the facts. Science is seeking the data. They're, they're pursuing new hypothesis. They're in court, there's this infinite amount of data, and they're just, we, we actually have a portion of it, and they have a theory about that. Here we have a God who has all the data. Not, not only that, not only is he observing the downstream effects, that's, that's science, he's actually the one who designed it and who made it. He's the one who did it. I don't think it's being anti-science to say, this is a better source than this. And rather than making the biblical record conform to the scientific record, I think the thing to do is to take the biblical record as true and to build the science. You're actually going to end up surely with better truth if you anchor it on the rock of God's word. He is the perfect interpreter. He has all the data. He is the one who actually willed and do it. It's not anti-science to say that we believe God's word. Well, still on the first point, God the creator. Because God is the creator, he is the Lord. He is the Lord. Why does God get to be in charge? Because he is the maker of heavens and earth. Of heavens and earth. He, he owns it. He made it. He is the creator. And, and he talks this way all the time in the Old Testament. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. The passage says, therefore heed my voice. And so his lordship is based on the fact that he is the creator. You know, God places Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives them a covenant. The covenant of works, of the tree of, of life you may eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you may not eat, for on the day that you eat of it you surely will die. Well, what gives him the right to do that? He's their creator. And, and so his lordship is a manifestation of him being the creator. Well, what a Genesis 1 and the biblical doctrine of creation, the fourth chapter of, of Westminster Standards, is essential for a biblical and Christian worldview. You know, one of the things you, you look for in a worldview is, where am I? And, of course, the, the, the dualist says, I'm in a world with no ultimate power, no good or evil, but we're seeking harmony in an endless contest in the circle of life uh, for harmony between good and evil. The Christian goes, no, that is not where I live. I live in a world that has a creator and a designer and who has revealed himself, and he is good, and he is sovereign. I live in a world made by God. What is the purpose of it? To, to glorify God. To, to really believe the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism 1-1, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever, changes everything about one's life. Uh, we live in a world where the assumption is I live for myself. I belong to myself. Uh, Chad made a great comment in his sermon Sunday night about the whole uh, uh, my body, my choice, assuming it's your body. It's not your body. It's God's body. Paul says the body belongs to the Lord. Oh, well, that changes everything. Yes, it does. It does. He is the creator. I live in a world made by God, for God, to glorify God. And, and how am I to do that? By obeying God. Uh, now, you see, this is the key conviction. One of the things that has really changed the world is, is, is this is how evolution changed the world. The great achievement of evolution prior to about, what, 1855, everyone believed in creation, 
by about 1885, there was about a 30-year window where most of the educational institutions were teaching evolution. And, and, and this, of course, leads to the 20th century, which, is, which, which sees the rejection of God and his authority. What was the achievement, the cultural achievement of evolution? It was, it was the removal of the notion that I owe God accountability because it is his world. The real point of evolution is it doesn't belong to anyone. You don't belong to anyone. We're not accountable to anyone. There's an endless process, and you're within this process, and you're just trying to find your own significance, the removal of of divine authority, of an obligation to a maker has changed the world. Well, we, we cannot afford to sacrifice the biblical doctrine of creation because on it rests the entirety. You're going to add in some things like the redemptive work of Christ, but it rests on that foundation on which the entirety of the biblical worldview rests. The very notion that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the the earth means that we have someone who does does own it. And and we have every reason, in fact, as we'll see in the next paragraph, our purpose is to glorify him. And we have an obligation to him, and this is right. Well, let's look at the second, there's only two paragraphs. Here's the second one, man created in God's image. After God had made all other creatures, he made man, created created man. That's bara, created man, male and female with reasonable and immortal souls, endued with knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness after his own image, having the law of God written in their hearts and the power to fulfill it, and yet under a possibility of transgressing, being left to the liberty of their own will, which was subject unto change. Beside this law written in their hearts, they received a command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which while they kept, uh, they were happy in their communion with God and had dominion over the creatures. An awful lot in there. Can you see that? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Man was specially created for a covenantal relationship with God in which there would be intimacy and communion. It's so moving when we read Genesis 2-7. Uh, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You know, up until that moment, it's all divine fiat. So God's sitting on his throne, and he's saying his creative word, let there be light, there was light. Let there be a division between the land and the sea. Let let there be the sea creatures. And then when it comes to you and me, he comes down. This is, is, you know, this is... uh, this is a uh, uh, what's what's the word I'm looking for anthropomorphic. Thank you. Uh, but God comes down and He puts His own fingers and He forms it with His own hands. What's being said there? Boy, this is special to me. This this is I'm taking personal involvement and not just in the making of it in in, in the destiny of this. And then he forms man for a face-to-face. This is the, he breathes into his nostrils. He makes us for this face-to-face relationship with him. I love the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to shine his face upon our face. So man was made in this special way for communion with God, with intimacy with God, and then he breathes his spirit within us. There is, now again, here's a travesty. The whole idea that mankind is just one step up on the evolutionary chain destroys the dignity of the human race. 
destroys it. And, and, and we're living in a world where there is where people may think there's dignity to the human race, but there is no valid reason to insist upon it. Well, the Bible says no man stands apart. This is, a, this is one, the third use of the verb bara in Genesis 1. This is a creation of something special and new that was not there before. Different from the animals. Now, God does put us in mammalian shape. He wants, that's why we, people say, you know, 80% of DNA between chimpanzees and, and humans are the same. Right, because we're both mammals. Uh, and God gave us a connection to the world. But we are not the same as other creatures. We are specially made. We are the bear, image bearers of God. Now, as God's image then, what does it mean that we bear the image of God? Well, one thing it means, maybe the fundamental thing it means, that in the microcosm, in the garden, in the world, you say, well, where's God? You're to look at Adam and Eve. By the way, one of the reasons we're not to make images is that we are the image. We're to be the image of God. We're not God. We don't partake of the divine essence. But Adam and Eve were designed to represent God in his dominion. They were in his authority. They were given dominion over the creatures. And then through their righteousness and holiness, they were to bear testimony to the godly, to the, to the, to the holy character of the creator whom they represented. Now, I would point out that it's male and female. It is as male and female that we bear the image of God. What does that mean? Well, it means that we need men and women. None of us together exhaustively bear the image of God. But in particular, it, there is the male version of the human race, and there's the female version of the human race, and it is together that we equally bear the image of God. Now, if you look at some of the uh, uh, apologetic value of Genesis 1, in, say, Egypt, if you're talking about someone bearing the image of God, you would only speak about the Pharaoh. Pharaoh bore the image of God. In fact, that language was used. You know, ordinary people, schmucks like you and me, we didn't bear the image of God, only the king. But then to actually say not only, it's not just the Pharaoh, it's man. But then to say it's as male and female. Don't tell me the Bible puts women down. When from the beginning you have this massive dignity given to male and female together, it's as male and female bearing witness to God. Now, again, you start to see the insidiousness of these attacks on our culture where there is no male and female. But it is at, we're explicitly told it's as male and as female, which are, which are God-created categories and things, that we bear the image of God. This is one reason why we really cannot afford, in the church today, even in the PCA today, the, the mood is that if we want to be evangelistically successful, we've got to kind of meet them halfway. You know, those mean conservatives like Rick Phillips won't let us ordain women to be pastor, but we'll have deaconesses. And we'll, we'll, we, we kind of, we'll blur the lines, the, the relationships and the roles between male and female. We won't talk about Feminine submission in marriage, male headship, those sorts of things, because that's not hit with our culture. But, but, but we're not just giving up incidental aspects of the Christian witness. We're removing the foundation of the very structure by which God says he is to be witnessed to and glorified. It's as male and female. I'd like to put it this way. Uh, an 18-year-old boy who's grown up in this church should not be asking the question, I don't know what it means to be a man. 
An 18-year-old girl who's grown up in this church, it doesn't have to be told what a woman is. It's, she's, she's lived it her whole life. Uh, we are to emphasize in wholesome, of course, godly, affirming ways, male and female. It's as male and female. Now, you have to even go further than that and say, what is the last act of the creation episode? It's a marriage. It's a marriage. The male and female, before too long, end up as husband and wife. So God, in the beginning, God created the, heaven, the heavens and the earth. He created, man and, he created man in his image, male and female. He created them. And before that whole account's done, that male and female are married. Why? Because God is love. Because the Trinity is a community of perfect love. And so it's not just male and female. It's male and female in the bond. Now, I'm not saying you're not bearing the image of God if you're not married. I'm just saying marriage is like a big deal. We're to cherish marriage. We're to uphold marriage. If we're married, we're, we're to really seek to glorify God in that. Uh, this, these are massive statements. Uh, now, usually when people talk about, I think you usually hear it today, what does it mean that man bears the image of God? You'll be told, well, man has reason and other animals don't. Well, my dog's pretty stupid, actually. But... Uh, he, uh, but you can find some pretty smart dogs. I mean, I had a parrot once who was really smart. Um, uh, the Bible does not make it based on man's reason, uh, although there's maybe something to that. Uh, one theory for the longest time was man's the only being that, that, that is erect. Well, I think the bear would differ with that. Interestingly, the, the biblical basis, and our confession picks right up on this, is it really emphasizes what does it mean that man has the image of God It's going to put them in the categories of knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. With knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, and you're going to add in the vocation of dominion. Dominion. Uh, this is uh, Robert Shaw. He writes, The image did not consist of participation in the divine essence. The image is not God. Adam is not God. He's not the divine being. Um, nor of God's external form, God does not have one, but it consisted partly in the spirituality of the soul of man. Now, we'll agree with that. Man has the capacity to know God. That's the knowledge. There's a spirituality. We may know God. My, my, my dog has never wanted to go to church on Sunday, except for that we were there. Uh, we're the only creatures who know God and worship him. It's, it's the, the, the testimony of the Spirit. And by the way, this is why all men and women are worshipers. All bearers of God's image inevitably worship. What, what a worshiping society we are. Boy, it's college football season. I mean, it's just idolatry left and right around here. Um, it's just, uh, and, and if not that, something else. We, 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 we are homo worship is what we are. We, homo would be benedictus. Doxologists. We, we were made to worship. Why? Because we have the Spirit of God within us. Likewise, and the dominion assigned to him over the creatures. But this is where the, the last quote I want to give you is this about the, about the image of God. The image of God in man is principally consisting of his conformity to the moral perfections of God, the complete rectitude of his nature. And so Paul, and it's interesting how the New Testament, when it says we're being restored to the likeness of God, and likeness and image essentially mean the same thing. He says we are renewed in the spirit of our minds, and we are to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Well, this is what it means to bear the image of God. 
that in the creation, this one creature was designed in two modes, the male mode and the female mode, and then in the married mode together. They were to bear testimony so that the cosmos says, that's what God is like. And, and there's a spirit of God within us. There's a dominion, but it is quintessentially righteousness, holiness. These are the things that God designed to be his image. Now, the question of did we lose the image of God in sin is a question I'll answer later. I think this is my last slide. Uh, the, the confession emphasizes that in their created state, Adam and Eve had liberty. That is true. They, 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 you know, I don't like the expression free will because it's loaded with all kinds of enlightenment philosophy. But if you want to use that term, it, it's true of God, it's true of the incarnate Jesus Christ, and it's true of Adam and Eve in the garden, and that's it. Because after, after the fall, we're corrupted by sin. But Adam and Eve were not corrupted by sin. They are the originators of the original sin. They were not sinners before that. They had righteous natures, and they had the law written on their hearts with power, and yet mutably. That means they could change, which we know they did. But let me point out that even in the garden, the liberty of Adam and Eve was to be exercised under God's authority. You know, what's going on with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? You may eat of any of the trees that are in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you may not eat on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What's wrong with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I would put it this way. God designed himself to be the epistemic center of, of his cosmos. Epistemic means source of knowledge, source of truth, source of, of morality in this case. And the way that Adam and Eve were designed to, to understand what is true and is right is by reference to God himself through his word. And the sin of eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was to transfer the epistemic center, the source of knowledge and truth and authority, from God to self, to one's, my own thinking, my own feeling. And this, is the, this, was, the, this was, of course, the great work of Satan in the garden. Did God really say? What's he saying? Shouldn't you be the arbiter of true and evil, of good and evil? Shouldn't you eat of that tree? You, you can't trust God to be the epistemic center. Well, we live in a society. These creation issues are so critical to our times. Uh, even, even on the gender issue today, I feel that I'm a woman. And you're, you're looking at me, Rick, you're not a woman, and I'm not. No, no, I feel that I am. Okay, Rick, but you're not the epistemic center. The source of truth and reality is not in you and your feelings and your thinkings. It's in God. And that's the great move taking. That's why we as Christian people can never accommodate this stuff. If someone comes and says, look, you, you, look I, I, it makes it sound like I'm anti-transgender. I, I have nothing but compassion on them. Uh, a, a lot of compassion for them. But we cannot uphold a biblical witness and agree that when God made you male, that, that the epistemic center is how you think about yourself. Now, that's, it's the essential movement of Satan that brought rebellion and death to the good creation was the removal of all authority and truth from God and his will and his world to man in his feelings and his thinking. Yes, Adam had liberty, but from the first instant, it was a liberty in which the epistemic center was the creator. 
truth and knowledge and authority lies with him. I exercise my... And that's what God was saying with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Enjoy the garden. You're righteous. You're holy. The law of God's written on your heart. He adds to the... Along with the indwelling law, there's the command of God. Now exercise your freedom. But as soon as those conditions are broken... As soon as man and our feeling and our desiring and our thinking is going to be the source of authority, that which was this great expression of life becomes a wilderness of death. So also is our society as a whole becoming a wilderness of death because man has eaten of the tree of knowledge and good and evil. We have rejected God and his word as the epistemic center. The result is death. Let me lastly say, since God is the creator, man in his image is a maker. God's a creator, we're sub-creators. That's the way Tolkien liked to talk about it. He was engaging in sub-creation, the use of imagination. Christians should be at the forefront of loving creativity. Why? We're the image bearers of of a creator of beauty. And so Christians should be uh, within biblical structures. We should be promoting, we should be creating opportunities. We should be encouraging creative arts. Uh, we should be building things. Man is a maker. We should be constructing things. You know, if we say he or she left a legacy behind, that's because they made something. We, we don't do ex nihilo creation, but we make a family, and then we raise it, and we tend to it, and we do it for God in good ways. You, 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 you build a church. You, 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 you start a business, and you make it good, and under the, under the, the, the teachings of God's word, every human being ought to be a maker. And we should be creating environments in which people express creativity because we are the image bearers of him who is the creator. Well, I think that's all I have to say. Let me pray. Father, I said an awful lot. And I pray, Lord, that it would stick, that things that we've looked at tonight, if we go back and read our confession, we maybe understand it a little better. But, Father, what a, what a marvelous thing it is to contemplate the creation and the creator the glories it shows us about yourself. Lord, we thank you that we are not living in the dualistic worldview of the, of the movies and of Eastern religions. We're not in an endless, ceaseless, pointless fight between good and evil. Who knows going to have the upper hand? We're seeking balance. Lord, no, no, we live in a world made by a good creator. And you are sovereign and your decree will be fulfilled and all things will be good in the end. Lord, we know the purpose of us now, of our lives, is that we would give you glory. Cause us to really embrace that teaching that our chief end is to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.